Olá pessoal, tudo bem? Welcome to the Brazil Crypto Report podcast, where we talk to the builders, entrepreneurs, and influencers from across the Brazil crypto ecosystem. I'm your host, Aaron Stanley, and today I'm joined by Honey Schuster from the Mercado Bitcoin research team. We're going to be talking about the upcoming Shanghai and Capella upgrades to the Ethereum network, which are scheduled to happen April 12th. So this topic is admittedly a little bit outside of the scope of this podcast, as I normally try to focus on news events that are specific to Brazil. But these hard fork upgrades are a pretty big deal for the crypto world. And in with, with Honey here, we have someone really great who can discuss this with authority and to help us kind of demystify what all this means. And uh, just as a quick housekeeping note, in light of some of these ongoing like disputes between social media platforms like Twitter versus Substack and everything, uh, I would like to just ask listeners to make sure you're subscribing to the Brazil Crypto Report Substack, uh, if you don't already, just to ensure that you're receiving everything in the future. Anyways, with that, Honey, welcome so much to the show. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Aaron, for inviting me. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Ethereum. Yeah, we have a, a pretty big community of, of Ethereum here, Ethereum people here in Brazil. We just had two big and, and nice conferences, Ethereum Rio and Ethereum Samba. So I, have, I had an interesting path. I used to work, I, I'm actually a chemical engineer, uh, undergraduate. And then I started working for a an, an project engineering company, a chemical engineering project. And we started as a regular Web2 developer. But then one day, one of my bosses said, oh, there's some kind of interesting new technology here called blockchain. Have you ever heard about it? I said, no, no idea what. <laughs> what the hell is it, you know? But so let's, we're, we're going to try to sell some, some research uh, products related to blockchain. So start studying that, that stuff and, and see if you see some potential in this thing. And that was the best thing that happened in my life, you know, because I accidentally started getting very deep and, and interested in blockchain technology. And of course, once you learn about blockchain, you inevitably learn about Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the other incredible projects that we have in the space. So, yeah, I started learning and consuming all the materials that I could related to crypto, Bitcoin's white paper, Ethereum's white paper, all the, the things that are created. This was in 2017, so kind of six years ago, not a long time, but started also, of course, investing in crypto because, again, when you know the problems that it solves, you see that it is one of the most important and relevant applications of technology that we have today in the world and then yeah and then from now from from that time on i just went further and further and then after two years working in those projects those projects were for private blockchains companies so it was a little bit different from crypto but then i was sure that i wanted to change and go to to work by researching crypto yeah that's that was the thing that I love to do. I, I used to do all the time by myself just for my personal investments. But then I, I decided that I wanted to do this for my life as my job. So I met Andre in a lot of conferences from crypto that we, we started going together. And then when he went to Mercado Bitcoin, he said, oh, come with me. Let's, let's make a team to, to develop research there and to study the market and stuff like that. And I was all in from the first time he said that. And that's how I, I came to crypto and to Mercado Bitcoin. I'm nice. already two years with him and, and I love it. And I plan to awesome. spending my whole life doing this. Uh, I love how everybody takes like a different path into crypto, right? You know, people start off as some people start off on kind of, you know, the, the monetary side. Some people start off as just, uh, you know, kind of the libertarian freedom side. Some people start off as uh, just like they're just nerd, computer nerd type people that, see something interesting you kind of come from like an engineering perspective doing something totally different um so it's really cool how this like everybody has like a completely different path uh into into the, the world of crypto which I, I was it's always interesting to ask people that question of how did you get in the industry because it's you never hear the same uh yeah. answer twice right so let's dive in here so um at a high level why don't you give us a little bit of context on just what these upgrades are we have we have two of them there's there's capella there's shanghai uh, what do these enable and what's some of the history that, that got us to this point of, you know, why are these things significant? Basically? Let's just give a step back and start with the merge that was 15 September last year, right? Everybody saw it. it was one of the biggest accomplishments from the Ethereum uh, network and the developers. Just 
uh, uh, a small recap for those who are not familiar with it. The merge was actually the change from the validation uh, structure in Ethereum. We used to have proof of work in Ethereum, the same process that Bitcoin and Litecoin has nowadays. And then the developers decided that it would be better to change to proof of stake. So basically the merge was uh, this big update in which we created some new chains, which is one of them is the Bitcoin chain, right? I, I will be a little bit technical just for the people to understand, but I think this is still a high level recap. So the Bitcoin chain is the, the main actor right now in the Shanghai fork, and I'll explain how this works, right? So for the, the, the proof of stake to happen, for the merge to happen, we needed to separate the responsibilities in the Ethereum chain, right? Some people think the Ethereum chain is just one thing, but as you, as you said before, it's actually two big chains which communicate with each other, the execution layer and the consensus layer. I know it's a little bit technical, but you can just think that it's like a father and a mother. Both live in the same house, both work together, both communicate, but they have different tasks and they need to do different stuff in order for the whole house or the whole, the whole blockchain to work correctly. So the thing is, the, the Ethereum developers have like a, a passion of giving strange names to things. So they gave one name to the update in the execution layer and one name to the update on the consensus layer. That's why we have this Shanghai and Capella for. So that's just a naming convention. So the changes in the execution layer are grouped in the, Sh the Shanghai fork and the change in the consensus layer are grouped in the Capella fork. But of course, we don't care exactly about one of the changes in one or another. So we just call the whole fork as Chapella fork, which is a little bit Shanghai, a little bit Capella. So from now on, I will call it just Chapella fork, just to refer to both changes. But be known that if you want to refer to some specific change in execution layer, you can use Shanghai and Capella, etc. But okay, could you, the merge. Could you, yeah, could you describe really quick what the difference between the execution and consensus layer? Like what are the task uh, differentiations here? So before the merge, actually before the Bitcoin chain was, was created in December 2020, everything was done by the actual execution layer. So validating transactions, uh, getting a consensus from all the validators from the network, uh, running smart contracts, uh, sending messages to, to all the participants, which, which you call gossip. All of this was managed by the execution layer. So when we had the merge, the developers decided that it would be nice to to separate those responsibilities. This is actually a good pattern from software development, right? Because now when you need to do some kind of uh, repair kind of in the, in the blockchains, you don't need to do it in the whole that do all the stuff at the same time. You can do uh, changes in the execution layer and don't do it in a consensus layer and vice versa. So it's much better for you when you're writing code and you're maintaining code to do it separately, right? So that was one of the, of the main objectives of this, the merge also, right? The merge was not only to change from proof of work, proof of stake, but also to make it easier for the developers to, to leverage new uh, updates such as Chapella and Denkun, which we're going to have at the end of the year. And, but that was the start of the merge, right? We need to finish the merge. And what does I mean by that? I mean, when you created a Bitcoin chain, this consensus layer in December 2020, you allowed for people to deposit their ETH in the contract, right? But you, could, you couldn't withdraw it. Like you, you, were like you were only allowed to take your ETH and put a validator there, and which are 32 ethers right, right now. And you don't have any option to take it out. I mean, you actually, we'll talk about the liquid staking derivatives, but for now, you can think that you wouldn't be able to take your ether out. And this started uh, in December 2010 when the, the Bitcoin chain was launched, but it's continued up to now, right? So the merge didn't enable the withdrawals. So what we need now after the merge is exactly that, something, some new fork that will enable the withdrawals. And this is exactly where Chapella comes, right? So the, Chapella actually has five EIPs, right? For those who doesn't know, EIP are Ethereum improvement proposals. So, but actually one of them is the most important, which in Portuguese I call Carro Chefe, which is like the, the main EIP that we are going to have, uh, which is the EIP exactly that will make possible to, to take the withdrawals from the Bitcoin chain, right? And this EIP is EIP 4895. I have here in my, in my report. 
and we're going to talk a lot about it. I would just mention the other EIPs. I won't uh, deep dive into them, but they are mostly optimizations for the, the chain in general, right? for, the, for the EVM, for the opcodes and stuff like that. So we have other four, which are warm Coinbase, push zero instructions, limit meter init code, and deprecate self-destruct. doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Uh, we wrote a report. Uh, uh, it's in Portuguese, but for those who are Brazilian or Portuguese can read it. It's explaining everything, so I won't go into detail on those EIPs. But if you want, I can send you the link so that you, you have the full information. There are mostly minor optimizations for developers, nothing interesting. What really is interesting is, as I said, EIP4895, because it will, as I said, enable the withdrawals from the mainnet, right? So people that started deposing those ETHs right there in December 2020, almost two, two and a half years ago, right? Uh, now they will be able to to take it out, of course, with the rewards, right? Because when you deposit if as a validator, you are randomly chosen by the, the algorithm from the proof of stake uh, method. And when you validate some transactions, instead of rewarding the, the miner, which was the case before when you had proof of work, now you reward, reward the validator. And those validators are get, uh, gaining, uh, are earning those rewards since December 2020. And now they will be finally able to have liquidity on those on those assets, right? So much of the people that started uh, started with 32 ETH for each validator, but they also uh, managed to earn lots of ETH as rewards. So this is something interesting when we analyze the the quantity of ETH that will be withdrawn and that will be sold, which is, I think, one of the most important uh, consequences of this update because the investor is really want to know exactly what is going to happen with the price, if the price is going to drop, if the price is going to, to get higher. And we're going to discuss a little bit about that because I think this is the most relevant point for investors, right? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, last time I checked, there was something like 17.5 million ETH staked currently on the Beacon Chain, which at today's prices would be something around like 32, 33 billion dollars, which is quite substantial. And... Uh, I mean, that's larger than the market cap of, you know, most other cryptocurrencies out there, right? Um, so I guess the question would be, you know, I mean, I remember when I staked my ETH, I, I think I used a Kraken or, or which which subsequently has been sort of shut down by the U.S. government. But uh, I, I staked I staked on Kraken and I got I got this warning notice for saying like, you know, you may never know, we may, you may not ever actually get your ETH back. Like I acknowledge these risks that, you know, I, I'll get this back at some indefinite point in the future or maybe never. Right. And I guess the question was, would be, it, it just seems like $32 billion to be deposited into this contract with no, you know, guarantee. I mean, it's in the roadmap that, this, that the withdrawals would be unlocked, but there's no guarantee. Right. That just seems like a, you know, for earning the average reward on, on staking would be something like, you know, between like four and 5%, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it just feels kind of like a lot of risk for that level of return. Um, you know, anyway, I'm just, just kind of curious as to like, why is this something that pe people have been so excited about, like just pouring their ETH into at this point, given that the fact that you might, you don't know if, if, and when you're ever going to get it back though. You want, I mean, we will, we will get it back, but like uh, for the last two and a half years, we're not sure. Right? Right? Yeah. That's a very good question. Actually. There was some some big things that influenced this. The first thing I already mentioned was the liquid staking derivatives. Yeah. So of course your eat, your real eat is is deposited there and is locked. But there are some very nice protocols and also some exchanges that offers the possibility for you to pay a, a discount and then get the liquidity from it, in which we call the liquid staking derivatives. So we have, for example, STEF. We have BE from Binance. We have CBE from Coinbase. Those are all kind of recipes that you get when you deposit your real ETH for them to make the, the, the staking for you. And then those uh, recipes you can use in DeFi, you can use to, to trade with other people. So this is kind of a way to give you liquidity even if you have your ETH stake. And of course, when the, the, the update is complete, you can change this recipe for the real if one-to-one, -one, right? So for now, 
of course, most of those recipes, they trade with a discount because you're like paying for the liquidity that you get and they are assuming the risk of the, the, the update. So, for example, I think CBEF was like 0.99 ETH or BEF was also like 0.99 ETH just because they are accounting for the risks. But something that you mentioned, why would somebody risk uh, so much money right at the beginning to stake ETH? But the, the thing is, when you see the curve from the yield, you see that at the beginning, in order to attract much more people, the yield was much, much higher because we also had much less ETH staked in the Bitcoin chain, right? The, the more time we go, the, the more ETH staked we have. So the rewards at the beginning were about like 24% uh, yield in Ether a year, which is, I think, the most incredible thing that I ever saw in my life because it's a very strong asset, in my opinion, and, and you were gaining like a lot. Of course, the uh, as time passed and as more ETHs were deposited, this yield got uh, uh, exponentially smaller, and now we're about 4 to 5%, depending on on the day, depending on the number of validators. But you're right, we have about 7.5 million ETHs staked right now. And this was important because in order to do the merge, in order to switch the, the, the validation from miners to validators, we need to have a lot of ETH and a lot of validators because if the validators number fall uh, less than two thirds of the network, we may have a possibility to have an attack, an, an attack on the network. So it was really important that we waited a long time and we uh, provided some financial incentives for the validators to come to, to, to the Ethereum network in order to have this structure ready before the merge. This was actually one of the things that why the merge took so long, because we need to have this structure already created in the background. But anyway, then people started to, to depositing the, the ETHs on the Bitcoin chain and use this liquid staking derivatives. And this is also one of the big reasons that we don't believe that will be a big price fall in after the 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 ETH are are enabled to, to be withdrawn. Because people, traders, like day traders, swing traders, people that want to speculate on the ETH price, they already have the option to do so with the liquid staking derivatives, right? So you can go to Lido, stake your ETH, take your ST ETH and use it on Aave and use it on anywhere you want, you're in finance. So you have liquidity, right? You have a discount, of course, because it's a different product. You have you you have the liquidity. You have to pay for the liquidity that you want to have. But still, you can speculate on if even with your uh, your if being staked there on the chain. So I don't believe that much of the traders will be interested in in doing so because they already can, right? So this is one of the big reasons so so in that's so in that sense you know we saw we saw a lot of people kind of day trading trying to swing trade the merge uh you know it really proved to be sort of a you know you know buy the rumors sell the news or you know kind of sell the hype type event right where there's a big run up in price then it kind of dumped right after um so we're not see you're not expecting anything like that in this instance just because you already have these liquid staking derivatives that if people want to speculate on the price of eth they already they can Though granted, some of these derivatives haven't been. I mean, it's it's kind of tricky just because we've learned with like the grayscale trusts, right? Where like if you don't without convertibility, it's hard to have parity, right? So these mm -hmm. the price of these these liquid staking derivative tokens will fluctuate, but it does give. Uh, I mean, these are some of the largest you know market cap coins on the on the market right now. So there's clearly yeah. like people have a huge interest in in you know purchasing and using these things. Um, but basically, you're not really expecting any kind of you know major sort of swing or day trading activity around this event just for that reason is that am i my understanding that setting that correctly you're totally right but i, I also in the in this report that we made i also put some arguments from the other side just for us to have like a democratic uh, argument right so people that defend that we're going to have a big uh, fall in the prices say that it will be done because of liquidity like so the market is or still very uh, low in prices, you know. So Bitcoin is 20, 28, 20, 28, and it was like before 67. So we're still like, I don't know exactly, but you know, 40, 50% a drop from the all-time highs. And people need liquidity right now to invest in other assets. So based on this, they will take their ETH reward and sell it 
for money, yeah, for, for, for dollars in order to invest in other stuff. We also have the the stock market is really is going really bad because of the the the, the banks crisis and also the, the Fed hiking the the base the, the base taxes. So people will probably, as they say, right? People will probably take all this money from ETH and buy stocks and buy rights and buy stuff like that. So yeah, this is actually a fair argument. I think it is it is possible that some people will do that. But actually, there are two types of withdrawals. Some people don't don't explain this exactly, so let me do it. You have you you have two options to withdraw actually. So, if you stake, for example, thirty two ETHs like in December two thousand twenty, you will have the thirty two ETHs that you stake as a validator, right? Which you need to have in order to be a validator. But you also have this other part, which are the rewards that you accumulate since you started validating, and so you can withdraw just the rewards. You can withdraw or you can withdraw just both, all of them, right? The, the validator and the rewards. And this is when things get very interesting because the rewards themselves, they're quite a, a big quantity, but they're not as big as the sum of all the, the validators, right? And so the question is actually is, there are actually two questions. Will people uh, just withdraw this, the rewards or will they re- withdraw the validators? And the second one, will people that withdraw those ETHs sell them right away or will they take these ETHs to run another validator or using DeFi somewhere or using any other stuff, you know, NFTs or stuff like that? So I think, so th- that's why I believe that we won't have a big price drop because I think first, liquid staking derivatives already took care of day traders, swing traders and people that want to speculate. And my argument is that people that are running validators for the Ethereum network are very much aligned with the ethos from the from the community, and they want to keep validating, right? And that and that is also a very interesting argument related to that. You said, oh, but uh, ETH uh, staking rewards is about four or five percent, which is not very good. If you see, like I don't know, Cosmos, we have like a twenty percent APY and stuff like that. But the thing is, when you see the, the real yield, right, when you uh, take out inflation from the protocol, you see that ETH is one of the best that you can have, right? For example, I'm, I'm not sure exactly the values, but let's say Cosmos is giving you 20% APY, but the inflation from the token is like 17% a year. So your actual real yield is just 3%, which is much less than the, the I don't know, 5% from ETH, right? And the thing is, when if some validators, of course, will be shut down. It, it, it won't be everybody that will keep their validators. There are already actually some validators which are on the line to be shut down. That's normal, but they're not a, a big quantity. But when validators come out of the of the network, the yield for the rest of the validators that remain goes a little bit up. So this is also interesting. So the yields after the Shanghai fork will probably go up. I mean, we may have more validators entering the the network because it will also be more safe to enter it right now after the Shanghai because you can uh, deposit and withdraw all the time. So some people that wouldn't like to keep their cash uh, uh, blocked for so many times before now may enter the the network. But I think the people that will, the the outflow will be bigger than the inflow at the beginning. So we'll probably have a rise, a hike, in the yields, not not a lot, of course, maybe from five to five and a half or maybe six, but still this makes it uh, still the most uh, uh, rewardable. I don't know how to say it exactly, but uh, the real yield from ETH will be one of the greatest in the market. And ETH is also a very used asset, right? You can see from the burning dashboards, we, we have like thousands and thousands of ETH being burned all the time. And so still one of the most attractive assets. And yeah, I think I, th- I think what will happen is there will be a mix of something like that. Maybe the price will swing a little bit. Maybe people, as soon as they take their rewards, they're trying to sell to get some liquidity to, to invest in other stuff. Maybe the price may fall a little bit. But I think that in the long term, it should rise because it makes sense for new people to go validating. It makes sense to people to use more ETH in the network itself and DeFi and NFTs and Metaverse and stuff like that. And yeah, so that's that's my prediction. I hope I'll be right. 
<laughs> next week we're going to we're going to check it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a couple of things you said there that are super interesting that I want to just kind of uh, circle back on. I mean, I think the first part you mentioned is that a lot of the people that had, had that were staking initially, you know, putting up the 32 ETH to run a validator, um, were you know kind of like early like Ethereum whale type people, right? Like people that were like really diehard believers in the community. And you have to, and, you know, 32 ETH is like pretty significant sum of money. Uh, even mm-hmm. back in December 2020, back when it was only, you know, $500 or whatever, that's still like a pretty significant, it's like, it's a reasonable sum of money to invest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the people that were putting up these, you know, the initial stake were, there were some of these guys who were like really just like Ethereum diehards that weren't necessarily in it, you know, quote unquote, if for the money, right? Even though everybody's in it for the money to some extent. But these, but was, you know, guys like Anthony Sassano, I remember his his podcast, he was like, so excited about he could stake his ETH fight. You know, he was just like overjoyed, you know. Um, so guys, guys like, yeah, the bankless guy. Yeah. So those guys that were just really like, they're just such diehard believers and they, they want to like, you know, they just want to make their contribution to growing the network. And it's not, it's not aligned. It's, there's no incentive for them to just sort of rug pull the whole network by pulling up their ETH right now. Right. And just, you know, kind of taking the whole system. Um, and then the second part you mentioned, which I, I hadn't ever actually thought about this, but it makes total sense. But your point about the, Kind of the, the real adjusted returns on staking, right? Because you, you know, you look at the ETH. You, you know, you go to these platforms on, you know, on Binance or whatever exchange you're on, and it says like, oh, click here to stake your coins, and it's like ETH. You get, you know, three percent, and Cosmos mm-hmm. you get twenty percent. It's like, oh, well, I should stake with Cosmos because I get twenty percent. But to your point, those those yield those those numbers that they're giving you aren't necessarily taking into fact to account the the inflation of the, the protocol real, yeah, exactly. and. And, you know, ETH has, I mean, ETH is, I mean, as, as far as I know, it's, it's like a deflationary coin, right? The now. only, the only one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Post-merge, post-EIP-1559, it's, it's deflationary. So uh, I, mean, I think, you know, maybe there's a chance that, you know, more nodes get spun or more validator nodes get spun up post, uh, uh, post uh, Chappella here. Maybe you end up going slightly inflationary, but it would probably be less than, you know, half a percent, 1% at, at max, right? So I guess, I mean, maybe the question would be like, how does this sort of enhance, you know, this, this like ETH as ultrasound money narrative? Is this, uh, I guess, A, do you even buy into this narrative that, I mean, it, it feels more, I mean, it, it feels kind of like just very like sort of clever marketing to me, but I can't like, I can't disprove it. So, you know, but I would love to you know get your thoughts on like, does this, does this Chappelle upgrade really enhance that kind of narrative moving forward? um as of, of eth as like a a uh you know i mean it's really yeah it's like the only deflationary uh cryptocurrency at this point of mm-hmm. of, of any scale yeah so I, I do think it has it it has a lot bit of marketing i agree with you but you also have some sense you know as as exactly what you said like bitcoin for example is not deflationary it's just even uh, it just gets less inflationary over time until it hits zero ether is actually the only deflationary i mean at least the only big top 50 cryptocurrencies that we have all the time and, and but what i like to think is what does it really mean to be deflationary it means that the blockchain pays itself you know the, the blockchain users via the burn uh, and structure they pay they're able to pay the whole operational part of the the blockchain so they they created a blockchain that is so useful that people want to use and want to pay so much that they're able to to maintain the validators by just using the network, which is something that no other blockchain has achieved, right? Bitcoin, for example, needs to to emit coins in order to to make the the mining viable. So they're not able to do the same thing. They're not able to guarantee that the users are enough to pay for their blockchain. They will be like in 2140 when the Coinbase uh, uh, reward stopped. But for now, they're still inflationary, even though they're also very, very little inflation compared to compared to the other protocols. I think it was like 1.7% a year, which is pretty much acceptable. But anyway, uh, Ethereum, no. Ethereum already has a block space that has so much value that people are, uh, you actually have a net positive value in the blockchain. So I've, I think this is incredible. As I said before, we never saw this before in, in any other blockchain. It makes uh, even more uh, understandable that Ethereum is uh, the heart of the smart contract world, you know, that you can do everything 
from DeFi to NFTs to, to everything that you want in Ethereum. And yeah, I think this makes the narrative from the ultrasound money a little bit stronger. But of course, uh, you, you may take it with a grain of salt because we have a lot of problems in, for example, the regulatory area, right? Which is very important for, for investments in general, right? So the way that SEC and CFTC are going to treat the EAT is very relevant in order to see if it will be effectively used or not. I mean, the, of course, it is used in the Web3 environment. We are talking about adoption for the whole world. And I, I want to be able to pay my coffee with it someday. So with Gwei, I hope, because it will be so valuable that you won't be able to, to use it. But anyway, you understood it. So for that to happen and for, for example, something much more interesting, which are uh, institutional players investing in crypto like in a big way, we need the, this regulatory side to, to work together with the Web3 side, you know. And we don't have it right now, at least in the U.S. And this is very yeah, bad. It's, it's a big problem. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a big problem. Well, we thought we had it, and then we, yeah. now we don't have it. So it's, uh, we sort of reversed course on some of that, exactly. uh, unfortunately, which is sort of probably a subject for another podcast, I suppose. But yeah, it's, it's definitely an issue. Um, I think the... In, in Brazil, the CVM has uh, made some comments, not like directly saying that they don't view ETH as a security, or, or, but they've made some comments suggesting that they would not view kind of ETH staking products as uh, as a quote unquote security. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I mean, is this, I mean, well, maybe let's use this as an opportunity to maybe pivot to just the Brazil market specifically. Um, maybe we can talk a bit about the regulatory side, but also like, just in the last two and a half years and, and maybe moving forward, what has the market been like for, for what's been the demand amongst investors, whether retail or institutions to get involved in staking ETH as uh, as an investment opportunity. And um, I'm thinking particularly just given the high interest rate environment in Brazil right now, where, uh, you know, you basically have to meet, you know, what, like 12, 13% returns just to be competitive with, you know, just At investing least, in government yeah. debt. Right. So, you know, what would be what would be the appeal for an investor uh, or an institution to stake ETH where you can earn four to five percent um, when on paper you're 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 kind of losing seven percent against the you know the next best alternative, basically. Um, anyway, we'd love to get your thoughts on just how is this how has the Brazil ecosystem been been uh, looking at this? OK, so first thing is, yeah, right. We have like a very high base. I forget the name from the... Uh, the the benchmark interest rate, right? The CD yeah, the rate. interest rate, yeah, exactly. So it's, so very, it's, like, very, the, so it's like, the, like the federal funds rate of Brazil, basically. Yeah. It's 14.75. So this is very high, but this also includes the risk Brazil, what we say, right? So we have a very populist government right now, and we also had actually uh, before, but it was a right wing and now a left wing. So most of the investors are still afraid of investing in Brazil, myself too included, for example, because that's the thing. You have so much instability, right? We have right now Acabouço Fiscal, which are lots of changes in the way that taxes are, are, are made and the government wants to tax all other initiatives, for example, uh, dividends from companies. So that's why Brazil needs to have such an, an interest rate well, a little bit higher from the world. But the thing is, I think that, as you said, CVM is very much uh, a good uh, a regulatory agency here. They, they're trying to understand crypto. They're trying to do a lot of projects. BC to the Central Bank from Brazil, the Federal Reserve from Brazil, also works very closely to the community. They're trying to do lots of projects. We saw some uh, talks in the those conferences about some projects. They, they do some projects, for example, with Mercado Bitcoin, in order to understand how can you use uh, tokenization, how can you use Ether and other crypto assets in the market. So I think they're very open to it. We already have here in Brazil for a long time the the ETFs, the spot ETF from Bitcoin, from Ether, for almost all the, the combinations that you can imagine. So our regulatory panorama here is much better than in the US and the outside. But I think, yeah, something that you said is the most relevant thing. I mean, the investor here, still, they are afraid of Brazilian government, but they still want to 
invest a lot of their money in the government bonds because it pays a lot, you know. That's that's what we call rentismo here in Brazil, you know. If you just lend your money to the government, you get like 15%. So it's it's really hard to to go with it. But the thing is, you're also buying a very high risk, you know. That's why you also need to 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 balance between your your assets, you know. I see Ethereum with a much lesser risk, even though it's a technology, even though it's evolving all the time. I can see the community that that is behind Ethereum. I can see the developers. I I track what their their updates, and I, I still think it is a better money than Brazilian guys, in my opinion. You know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is so the, the real. So the real is not uh, ultrasound money in the. No, Rio is definitely not a trust on the money. The dollar is also not. We actually have no trust on the money, but I mean, we just need a good money, you know, a money that resists inflation in some way, or at least allow a very low inflation rate so that people can keep buying stuff with the same money at least. And yeah, I think maybe Ethereum is like 40, 50% of trust on the money, but still not, not there yet, you know, it needs to prove itself. Well, I think the other component here is the is the, when we're talking about you know the opportunity costs of uh, of these different types of investments. I mean, there is the appreciation potential of ETH, right? We did see it run up to almost five thousand dollars in the last bull market. Uh, we're sitting at about like what you know 50 percent uh, of that that sum right now. Um, so even these rewards, even you're earning five percent, you know, say assume you're earning five percent on your staked ETH, you know, rewards in the you know for the foreseeable future. But the value of those rewards might, you know, might double in the next, might double, triple, quadruple in the next bull market, where the fifteen percent you're earning in hay ice on on government debt, uh, you basically you basically can guarantee that it will be going down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, if, if inflation is, I'm not sure what the official inflation numbers in Brazil are right now, but uh, you know, your real return would basically be something like seven, you know, maybe seven eight percent or so. Uh, if you go, if, assuming there's like seven, eight percent inflation in the country right now, um, which I, seems about accurate in my purview, though I haven't looked at the official numbers recently. But so then you're, you're talking about in real terms, you're actually not talking about that big of a difference, right? You're, you're getting five percent return staking in ETH, and you're getting maybe you know, seven, eight percent real return by buying government debt. You know, maybe there's not that. You know, if you just assume some pricing, price appreciation later on down the road in in the price of ETH, then you know, all of a sudden, okay, maybe this is a pretty compelling investment opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. On the Americano Bitcoin side, uh, I know you guys offer a staked ETH product. Um, I think you guys launched it fairly recently, maybe in the last year yeah. or so. Um, we'd just love to like hear a little bit about what type of demand has there been? I mean, has this been something that folks have been interested in, like you know, retail, institutional? Has there been, obviously, there's been an education process into teaching people like what this actually is, right? It's a little like investing in crypto is, you know, scary enough for the average person, but like this other kind of, you know, staking your crypto, like what does this even mean, right? So um, we'd love to kind of hear like what type of uptake or what type of interest have you seen uh, from, you know, from the client base or from just uh, other other investors just interested in learning more about what this, these, this product is? Oh, perfect. Yeah, so we launched this taking for ETH, I think it was the end of November last year, so... A little bit kind of six months from now and we see a big uh, search for for this product right we saw we did some researches before in the brazilian market and we see that people used for example binance and coinbase because most of them because they were able to stake their coins there and also earn some reward so that was something that we wanted to implement in, in mercado bitcoin and we're not stopping there we started with it but we're probably announcing in the next month some other staking some other possibilities to stake other assets like Solana, Cardano. Don't know exactly which ones, of course. Our technical team needs to to study how to do it. But the idea is also to have a better user experience for our, our customer, right? So he he will be able to buy ETH, buy Bitcoin, buy anything he wants, and also stake it in our platform. Of course, always in a safe way, which is the most important thing in crypto. Most people just don't care about it, but it's actually one of the most important things. Somebody who has money on the FTX knows exactly what I'm talking about or in Celsius or in BlockFi. So security is number one priority. And of course, we have it in, in Mercado Bitcoin. 
And that's why we also takes a little bit more time to develop some product right? because we need to do it in, in the right way, not as FTX did. But yeah, I think uh, we, we saw some big uh, demand from the retail. Uh, we also some institutions want to talk about, but institutions also have other ways to, to do staking, so a little bit less than retail. And our focus in the exchange are mostly also retail clients. We have like almost 4 million uh, participants, which is a, a huge number. And yeah, I think it will grow larger also when we include those new assets available for staking in the future, right? So I think it will it will be very interesting to see the development. The thing that I'm most afraid is actually the, the regulatory side, as we said before, like... Um, if the U.S. for SEC uh, considers it in stake as a security, this won't be good news for us. Even though we we may take may may believe that CVM and um, central bank won't won't do it here, but still it's it's a risk. You know we know everything that the U.S. does have a, a big ripple effect in the world. So let's hope CFTC wins the 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 battle there and they. They treat it as a commodity at least. But yeah, I think it is it is a very good product and I, I'm much proud of it. And I do a lot of staking in Mercado Bitcoin too, which is, I also use Lido, which I like very much because of the liquid staking possibility. But yeah, that's, that's it. So I guess two more questions here. Um, I guess one, the first would be, we've talked a bit about some of these liquid staking protocols, uh, the Lido and, and, and these others. Um, what becomes of these protocols once withdrawals are enabled like what what's the value proposition for a liquid staking like a like a synthetic eth that's that's you know paired to some you know paired to a staked coin when i could i mean well why like why why the synthetic version when i could just have the real thing right uh or will there still be a demand for people that they want to stake their eth but they also want that synthetic uh, token to be able to go yield farm or do other, you know, airdrop farm or whatever they're going to do. Um, I mean, would it actually be beneficial for these protocols just given that you do have that, you have the convertibility now, right? So there, you can, you could actually have the full, you know, price parity because the assets are actually convertible. So I think it will be still relevant to have those, uh, uh, those protocols because they also, they not even, they not just give you the recipe for now, but they also give you all the whole infrastructure needed for staking, which is also very complicated. I mean, if you want to run a node at your home, it's not a simple task. Not only you need 32 ETHs, which, as you said before, is a lot of money, but you also need to be sure that you have like internet connection all the time, that you have the updated software version for your client, that you don't have any other issues that you could get slashed and, and lost and lose all of your staked ETH. So running a validator is not an easy task. Uh, that's why we have like such companies doing that and, and the, the exchanges doing that. And that's why I think that Lido, Rocket Pool, and Staker and all those those uh, protocols will still be relevant even after the Shanghai Fork, even after we have the, the parity from, from the recipes to the to the normal ETH because they abstract you all of the, the worries that are related to running a node. And of course, they... they, they they that's, that has a cost like a small fee that you need to to pay that they take out of your staking earnings but it's much easier to to do it than to do it alone you know it's it's as, as i said it's not only the the capital need and but also the the technical stuff that is very hard for 99 percent of the of the investors so i think there will be actually even more uh, uh search for for the liquid staking derivatives not because of the, the derivative itself, but because of the service of, of that they provide. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, that's, that's an interesting point. I, I remember back when the, the Beacon Chain was first uh, about to launch, I tried, I had this ambition. It was like, I'm going to, I'm going to run like a, a testnet node in the lead up to the Beacon Chain launch. And I think I maybe got like 20 minutes into it. And I was like, yeah, this is way too, I mean, I'm not technical. So like, <laughs> I, was, I was like, I downloaded this. I'm like, okay, yeah, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. <laughs> so I'll just, I'll just outsource to somebody else. You know, it's fine. Yeah, um, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, and then I guess the other question would be, and, and, and this may actually be a kind of like a nothing burger question, but I am um, sort of dumb question, but does this have any meaningful impact on 
you know, all these different kind of like layer two uh, ecosystems that we're seeing uh, really coming to fruition right now. We just had like the Arbitrum airdrop, obviously. Um, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, it seems like these kind of layer two scaling wars are like really heating up. Um, but does this, does this upgrade at the kind of the, you know, the execution and consensus layer of the Ethereum mainnet have any meaningful impact on, on layer twos or these ecosystems? So no, the short answer is no. I think this update has no no relations with the scalability issue, which is encompasses all those layer twos and, and side chains and stuff like that. But also linking with something that you said before, the, the next steps for Ethereum, I think the next update will have a huge impact on scalability and layer two and rollups, which is the, the Cancun fork, where Cancun is again the name for the execution layer. Deneb is the name for the consensus layer. So you can call it uh, Denkum Fork, which is very ugly, but anyway, that's <laughs> the developers from Ethereum's ideas. But so this fork, which will probably happen uh, in October, November this year. I, anyway, we, we know that it, it always has some delays, but I think it will still happen this year or maximum in the beginning of next year. So this fork will implement what we call proto-dunk sharding. I won't get into too many technical details here, but it's a way to give the rollups and layer twos and sidechains some space dedicated to them directly in the Ethereum chain, the regular chain. So it will be much, much cheaper for them to include their transactions and their proofs of transactions in the, the main chain. So this will have a huge impact in everything that relates to Ethereum. And of course, the rollups themselves will uh, greatly benefit from this update. Their costs of transaction will probably be much, much lower than they are today, which are already still usable. You know, they're not cheap. They're like some some cents, maybe half a dollar when they're like very used, but they will drop like 10 times up to 100 times. So it will be really, really, really cheap to use the, the rollups. Uh, after this fork, after the fork is success, successful, of course. And this will solve the biggest problem in Ethereum nowadays, which is scalability, right? Uh, we also have other two big problems, which are UX and regulatory issues that we talked before. But we are already addressing them. I mean, we have a cut abstraction for UX. We have at least some lobby, some crypto lobby in the US trying to to regulate in favor of crypto. And the answer to the scalability issue is exactly this fork, right? The, the Cancun fork or Denim fork that you're going to have at the end of the year. Of course, this is just a first step in solving the issue. It's not a complete solution. We need to get to a, a sharding solution, which will come just years from now. But this is a good start. You know, this is a, a first step that will probably make rollups much, much, much cheaper and much, much more accessible for, for all people and for all applications, right? So, yeah, I think it's amazing. Really I mean, and you, you completely front, man, front ran my last question, which was going to be what's next on the Ethereum roadmap? <laughs> already covered all that, so that's great. Uh, one other question about on the, the dank sharding front, um, and for, this, is, this is maybe a bit of a dumb question. This is something, I, an area I paid attention to a lot like three years ago, and my knowledge has sort of has, has, you know, fallen a bit since then. But is the is the dank sharding like a divergence of sorts for a pivot, I guess, from kind of the original ETH2 roadmap? Where as when I was studying this back about three years ago, I remember the plan was to have, okay, we're going to have these 32 shards, right, uh, on the network. And then the, the beacon chain is basically going to be the, you know, almost like the you know, the the the, the air traffic controller that's communicating between all the different shards, right? And now it feel it seems like you know, essentially these shards have really, you know, the, the roll-up, you know, the roll-up centric roadmap has really kind of replaced the shards, at least in the interim. But but the sharding will eventually, the, the sharding has basically been like moved down the roadmap essentially uh, mm -hmm. because the the roll, the, the layer two uh, sort of roll-up functionality is, is it's, it's, it's basically like a better short-term, medium-term solution. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? And, that, and this is the whole idea of the dank sharding where yeah. it's you're basically you're doing roll-ups first, and then you get to the sharding. Am I understanding you that correctly? You understood 100% correct. That's exactly what happened. They realized that sharding is complicated, <laughs> you know, technically very complicated to implement. 
some block some new blockchains already have it and they give some very big issues and we are talking about small blockchains with like one billion year protocol something like that and ethereum has like much much more money than that so imagine the the mayhem that would be if we tried to implement it and it didn't work so that's exactly why the devs and the researchers there pivoted in this new solution which is much more simple is not simple <laughs> but it's much more simpler than implementing the full sharding from once and still solves the problem which is i mean the the goal is to solve the scalability issue if we solve it using shardings if we solve it using rollups doesn't matter the user just need to have a chain to use and to guarantee that their transactions are safe and the rollups they inherit the security from the mainnet so they they are guaranteed to be to be safe you know the sidechains not but the rollups they do so yeah that's why they decided exactly to pivot the development in focusing on giving the rollups more space this rollup centric that you mentioned and then we can do shardings later because sharding is very complex as you said you need to have the bitcoin chain coordinating 32 or 64 shards at the same time you may need to to deploy for example when you swapping a lot of shards you may need to change shards it's not simple so that's why they they, they opted for for that solution yeah but we also just yeah. just to complement we have a big roadmap for Ethereum in the coming years, right? Vitalik just uh, showed us some some of his ideas, right? So we have the surge, which would be the eventual implementation of shardings, probably 2025. I don't know, depends a lot on a lot of other stuff. We also have the purge, which will be an update that will focus on purging uh, historical data that is not needed to run a node. The the splurge and lots of other uh, updates in Ethereum for the coming year. So it will be very, very exciting. And I'm very happy that I am Ethereum. I work with Ethereum so I can cover all of it when it comes to the time. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It, it was the, the, uh, the meme that Vitalik was saying it was like, what's like the merge, the splurge, the purge, the purge and the, the, you know, whatever. <laughs> the merge. Yeah. He likes the yeah. silly names, but okay. Yeah. It's Vitalik. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he's let him do it. You know, he's earned it. He's earned the right to call it whatever he wants. Right. Yeah. So, but, but hey, well, listen, Honey, thank you so much for coming on um, on the show. And, and it's been super educational. I learned a lot here. Um, I'll include some of the links to, to some of your research reports uh, in, in, the, in the notes here. And, um, you know, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you if they have further questions? Well, you can try the Discord from Mercado Bitcoin. I can send you the link here. We are there all the day. We also do some weekly calls there. So we... we we were, we were we are four in the team, so everyone has like a specialty. I have like smart contracts. We have an NFT guy, DeFi guy. So everybody takes the the news from the week, and then we drop it in a one hour meeting. So it is very interesting. So you can just join there. I will send you the link right now, and it's very awesome. interesting. But you can also ask us anything all the time. We have a channel there. We're always available, and, and that's it. Okay, awesome, awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, Honey, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back soon with another awesome episode. Obrigado, everyone, and thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five-star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.